Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, as the world focuses on Ukraine these past few weeks, many faith-based groups are organizing to support the country and its people. So this week, I reached out to local community leaders in the D.C. area to hear what their organizations are doing to provide assistance both in Ukraine and for those fleeing the attacks by Russia. I spoke with Tamara Werbe, Parish Council President at St. Andrew Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral in Silver Spring, Maryland, and Gil Pruce, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington. This conversation was recorded on Wednesday, March 9th, and naturally there have been additional updates since we spoke. But as we discuss in the conversation, the support will be needed for weeks and months to come. So look to St. Andrew's and the Jewish Federation's websites for up-to-date information on how to help. Another quick note, I recorded this interview while traveling, so please excuse the change in audio quality. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to being back in our beloved Wowdy studio. And now, my conversation with Tamara and Gil. For, for being available, for being available during this really busy time. Lots of news coming in all the time about the situation in Ukraine, and, and obviously things are changing day to day, perhaps even hour to hour. Ukrainians are, are fleeing to Europe and beyond, and um, there's a worldwide effort to support these refugees as, as, uh, as well as those who are still in the Ukraine. Um, so Tamara, I just want to start with you. What was what was your life like just a few weeks ago, and how has it changed because of these events? Yeah, uh, two and a half weeks ago, I was just a normal person with normal little stresses in comparison. And uh, now I've become an expert on containers and pallets. I never even knew what a pallet was and how much a pallet weighs and what a ton feels like and what 20 tons are because we've been helping pack a lot of packages um, and just mm. our world has changed. Um, I, I guess what I would say is in the, the way my life has really changed is when I would have nightmares and I would be sleeping and I would wake up and there's always that nice feeling of oh, it was just a dream. Mm. Now, I sleep peacefully and I wake up and I go, oh my God, I'm in my nightmare and I can't get out of my nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's time to get to work and, and people that you love are in danger. Huh? And when I wake up, the first thing I do is get on my WhatsApp. We have two family WhatsApps. I have family in Canada, Germany, Switzerland, and Ukraine. And uh, I just look to see if there's a bunch of apps that are there just number wise, because then I go, okay, then somebody's still alive there. Well, backing up a bit. Um, so you're, you're from a Ukrainian family yourself. It sounds like you're, you're, uh, you've got folks that are in all, all parts of the globe, um, as well as Ukraine. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your family's story? How did, how did you end up um, in, in the Maryland area? Um, I was born to Ukrainian refugees, displaced persons who had been living in Western Ukraine until the Second World War, and then they were displaced and tried to get away from the Soviets, ended up in a German displaced persons camp. Uh, at that time, those refugee camps were divided into the America's, American zone, British zone. And my parents were in the American zone. My father always dreamed to get uh, to move to the U.S., but Canada came through for him first. So I was born in Canada. My parents ended up living in Canada. Um, and then about 30 years ago, I came for work purposes to the U.S., and I've raised four children in the U.S. as Americans. Americans who are very aware of their Ukrainian heritage. Yes. Yes, and and so and speaking of speaking of that, how has the Ukrainian Orthodox community been a part of your life during during your the way that you were up you were raised and and the way that you brought up your kids? Well, I guess in a lot of ways, I've 
wasn't that interested in going to church in my 20s. And then after when I had children, the first five years, you sort of just busy with them at home. And then as they start getting to kind of kindergarten, you think, well, maybe it's time to give them some understanding of religion. And I believe mm -hmm. as a parent, I'll give them the religion. And then at 18, 19, if they don't want it, they don't have to have it as opposed to not giving them one and having it discovered later on. So I started going to church, became active in the Sunday school as one of the parents of kids. And uh, then one day, somehow I ended up on the parish council. And then before I knew it, it was parish council president. And <laughs> like with all organizations, if you do a halfway decent job, you have it for life. <laughs> You're president for life. Uh-oh. That's <laughs> somehow that's it seems to be title. that way. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, it sounds like they got their got their hooks in, in you and and uh and have a have a yeah. great dynamic leader now, um, you know, who's leading the charge with the with the work that you're you're doing there with your with your church community. Well, I have to say we have an incredibly vibrant pastor. And if it weren't for him, I'm not even sure that I would be on the council. So we just really work together. And he's always so supportive and optimistic. He's also an Air Force chaplain. So he works you want with to shout US. him out by name? Oh, Father Volodymyr Steliak. Um, he's he's just a, a wonderful person and uh, two weeks ago I'll just say what he said the church was just filled with people and he said this week the world we're in a better place the world than we were last week and we all thought what you know there's been an invasion war and he said yes because you know there's bad and there will always be bad but there's also good and there's so much more good in the world and um, what has happened is the world is united in good and in love. And that is really good for the world. Wow. That's a, a wonderful message to have at this hectic time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gil, bringing you into the conversation, how about for you? Does your family have a connection with Ukraine as well? Um, so, yes. Um, so, um, various parts of my family come from either uh, Central or uh, Eastern Europe and Ukraine. So um, my father's from Germany and I have family both from Poland and Ukraine. Um, most of them left kind of at the turn of the century, 1908, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, my father's family left, I mean, this is Germany in, in 1939. Um, and they were able to get out and go to Bolivia um, before uh, World War II kind of uh, kind of started. Um, but my the history of my family, my wife's family is definitely from mostly Poland, Ukraine. Um, but um, they uh, primarily got out before uh, World War II. Yeah. And obviously, there's a large number of Jewish families, you know, like yours, it sounds like, who came to the U.S. from Ukraine. Uh, actually, mine is one of them as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Many escaping pogroms in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, so I'm, I'm curious for you, Gil, thinking about it from, from the Jewish lens, what do you see um, as connecting some of that family history to the present moment? Yeah, so the Jewish community has a very... Um, long and mixed history with Ukraine. Um, and partly um, some families, you know, having escape programs, as you know, in the 1880s, um, early 20th century, others who lost their entire families uh, during, the, during the Holocaust in Ukraine. Um, but many uh, members of the Jewish community who trace their history and their families back to different towns and villages, some smaller, some larger ones um, to Ukraine. Um, and we see that now there remain to be an estimated 200,000 Jews living in Ukraine, um, primarily in the large cities, um, but 200, um, many elderly, 200,000, um, you know, primarily in places, Odessa, Dnipro, Kiev, et cetera, um, but also in many small towns, um, um, elderly um, people, you know, they've grown up there. So there's a long history 
um, which is also why both in terms of the history and the continued presence of a large Jewish community in Ukraine, why there's been such a strong response um, within both the local and the global Jewish community um, to the war um, and the attack by Russia. So how are Jewish communities and organizations coming together to support Ukraine in this moment? So there are a variety of different ways. Um, for the past many years since uh, the um, fall of the Soviet Union, there have been global Jewish organizations, the Joint Distribution Committee, um, the Jewish Agency for Israel, as well as several others who've been on the ground um, trying to rebuild Jewish life in Ukraine for the many people who stayed. Um, some human services, um, some building schools, summer camps, and they've been on the ground and we've been working with them. Um, and since uh, the beginning of the war, really, I mean, uh, two weeks ago, I remember my son texting me around midnight um, saying, seems like Russia has, has started the war. Um, mm. I was already asleep when I saw that text. And immediately, you know, a similar thing, I knew that the next day, beginning that night was going to be completely different. Um, the Jewish community has mobilized um, to bring resources to help um, now the 2 million refugees who are who have escaped, as well as the many millions who are living under constant attack um, and just trying to you know, defend their country and survive. Um, and so we have focused both on meeting the needs, the particular needs of the Jewish community on the ground, but also the broader needs of all Ukrainians. Yeah. And do you do you see any um, particularly acute threats to, to Jews in Ukraine in particular, or, or is it more a broader uh, support that you're involved with? It's, we don't see any particular threats at the moment to the Jewish community. Um, it's uh, the country of Ukraine over the past uh, several decades has been um, a place for, for a growing and thriving Jewish community. Um, there's always the danger during times of uncertainty and war how various minorities are treated and what does that look like? Right. So that's always a question out there and who gets blamed for what. Um, it's interesting, obviously, that the president of Ukraine is Jewish. I was um, gonna ask about it, yeah. And so that's always, it's uh, a fascinating part of Ukrainian history um, at this particular time. And someone who, I don't know how seriously he was tr considered in the beginning, um, but as definitely, a comedian, a former as, <laughs> exactly. Um, but now is seen as one of the, um, you know, strongest and most influential global leaders. Um, and really, it's, uh, it's been a tremendous uh, development. So um, I've we seen don't see on, on the on the lighter side of thing, things, I've seen a lot of thirsty memes, Jewish memes around the, 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 this uh, very studly uh, uh, Jewish president, you know. Absolutely. Here. <laughs> if I can just uh, cut in here, they, they, there's a story there. Uh, once upon a time, there was a Jewish family who lived in eastern Ukraine and they had four sons. And three of those sons were killed by Nazis mm. and one survived. And today, the one who survived, his grandson is the president of Ukraine. Amazing. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. I'm your host, Jack Gordon. And this morning, my guests are Tamara Warabi, parish council president at St. Andrew Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral in Silver Spring, Maryland, and Gil Pruce, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington. Tamara, uh, going back to you, I, I don't know very much about the, the distinctions between the, the different Orthodox Christian communities. Um, and, and I wondered if there, if there were tension points between the Ukrainian and Russian Orthodox communities, or is it simply a matter of, uh, of geography? Um, if, if I can just give you real quick history, the first thousand years, Christians were all in one church, and then there's the Great Schism, where there's the Eastern Christian Church, which becomes the Orthodox Church, located right. in Constantinople, and uh, the Roman Catholic in, in Rome, and Catholicism, and from there, 
600 years later, they break away to Protestantism and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the seat of all Orthodox churches is in uh, Greece, in, Con sorry, in Constantinople, Greece or Constantinople, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but it, the Greek church is the uh, sort of head church. And then they, there's Ethiopian Orthodox Church, Armenian Orthodox Church, Ukrainian Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Church, but under the Soviet Union, uh, the uh, head of the Orthodox Church did not recognize the Ukrainian Orthodox Church because the Russians okay. didn't, didn't want that. And uh, I'm sorry, but the Russian Orthodox Church has a history that is very KGB and very linked today to Putin. I'm not going to say that that applies to the Russian Orthodox Church here in the United States because mm. Most of the people who are in the Russian Orthodox Church have escaped or chosen not to live in, in, in Russia. Uh, but uh, in, in terms of just overall, about two years ago, uh, the Greek church recognized uh, the independence of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church absolutely, absolutely did everything to not let that happen. Oh, so wow. I am concerned that the head of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, who's still in Kiev, is one of the targets along with Zelensky for Putin. I see. I see. I see. I'm very sorry to hear that. You know, I think as as somebody outside of the community, you know, you see sometimes, I mean, obviously it's the same thing with the Jewish community. The Jewish community is very diverse and, and people who don't, aren't familiar with with the many cultural distinctions and everything, it's you, you don't know exactly, you know, what the politics mm -hmm. or cultural differences are there. So I'm, 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 I appreciate you, you sharing that. Well, um, I've had people when I tell them I'm Ukrainian Orthodox, they ask me, are you Christian? <laughs> they think you're an or uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Jew. Is what I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, um, so, can you tell us some of the unique characteristics of the Ukrainian Orthodox tradition? What what makes it distinct? Well, I guess in comparison to sort of more modern American Protestantism, there's much much less interaction, and it's more a visual thing. You watch the choir is singing, the priest sort of says, bless you, and the choir responds, amen, or, uh, you know, God give us this or something. So when I go to church, and I'm saying this from my own personal view, sure, I just go to relax, and I sit in the pew, and I watch the beautiful, beautiful icons, and the kind of pageantry of it, the wow. priest is in beautiful robes, there's incense, the smell, the choir sings, and then I kind of meditate and, 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 and think about it all. And then at one point, there's um, our father, which the church, sing, church choir sings, and then everybody together says, our father who heart in heaven. And for me, that's sort of when the service comes together. And then I walk out just feeling, feeling good. good. <laughs> that's it's why I personally go to church. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I've seen some and, pictures of Saint Andrew, the the Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral, um, that the uh, community that you're a part of, and the pictures are beautiful. Obviously, the the icons and everything, the interior that I've seen of the of the church are, are gorgeous. That seems to be a hallmark of of that tradition. Yeah, well. and we're 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 lucky that we're located on this beautiful five acre property that goes way behind the church and has a pond. So. Third weekend in September, this will be our 19th annual Ukrainian festival. And oh, it good. draws over two days, 10,000 people. And because we have this big land, there's a tent with food. There's a stage with dancers. There's Cossacks on horses with cannons. And uh, do invite both of you and your communities to, to join. In, but it's always been about celebrating Ukrainian culture. It's never been political. I'll, I'll say in a joking way that that my family might be a little bit wary of going into a room with Cossacks. But you know, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but no, that sounds wonderful, and it, it's. I, I'm sure that I'm sure that the event will be will you know take on a special meaning and celebration. Um, you know, this year in particular. 
Um, how uh, you, you mentioned, obviously, at the beginning of, of our, uh, our time together, how you've been really working day and night on, on um, you know, gathering supplies and supporting. How is your community um, at, at St. An Andrew uh, uh, helping to support Ukrainians and, and Ukrainian Americans at this time? Well, we are supporting financially. I mean, first of all, we've just been overwhelmed by the reaction of the community, the non-Ukrainian community. Um, people come and they leave flowers at the door or our church is now open 24 seven, the sanctuary, wow. because non-Ukrainians want to come in and they say, what can I do? And they want to pray in the church and they're mm -hmm. crying. There's so many people that are just crying. So one of the things we're doing is reaching out just to, to console the community, even though we have to console ourselves. And of course we're collecting financial donations, which you can donate to on our website. Um, but uh, with that money, we are choosing different groups. And one of them is by a good friend of mine that I know. He's an American who opened up DuPont in Moscow in 1990 when DuPont first set up uh, services. The he paint was company there for chemical DuPont, Cor DuPont, DuPont Corporation, the chemical okay. company. Uh -huh. And then uh, he they opened up an office in Kiev. So they sent him to Kiev. He is of Ukrainian heritage. He actually was born here and raised in Clarksville, Maryland. Okay. And um, then ended up living since then in Ukraine. He became the CEO of an agricultural uh, French company, was doing exports of agricultural products. And when President Biden told Americans to leave, he was actually on CNN saying, thank you very much, but we're not going. We've lived here wow. for all this time. So he now is heading up an, an NGO um, that is getting medical supplies into Ukraine, but they're also dealing with the internally displaced. And their goal is not to help the people in Poland and Romania who have fled, but to, to find housing, um, shelter. They've taken over the big stadium. He needs mattresses, sleeping bags and that for the women and children who are in the West, but have not gone over the border with mm -hmm. the idea that you don't want everybody to leave. You want people to- um, exactly. Day. But, you know, I do want to underline, they say 2 million people have left Ukraine. Uh, 1 million of those are children. It's primarily just women and children. And people have asked me, well, I'd like to help a refugee family. At this time, those people do not wish to be resettled refugees. They're mostly women and children whose husbands, sons uh, are fighting. And they're just over on the other side of the border praying. So it's too early to talk about resettlement. One of the quotes that I heard on the news was a woman exactly in the situation that you were talking about who, who said, I, I left my heart in, in Ukraine, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, and I'm, I'm sure a big part of her meaning is, is literally her, you know, her husband is there and, yeah. uh, and, and, and they want to go or back. Or brother or cousin or, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gil, uh, how how have you also been been working with within the federation to to create support? You created this uh, emergency fund, correct? Correct. Yeah. So um, on Thursday, the day after the war started, we created an emergency fund as part of a national effort um, for us primarily to raise dollars. Um, and we want to make sure that we send over dollars to um, organizations on the ground. Um, and so far to date, we've raised um, a little bit more than a million dollars that we are sending over part of a national effort that to date has raised um, around 20 million. Um, I believe that's just the start of what we'll need to continue doing. Um, but it's really it's been we've had thousands of donors, um, um, incredible response across the community, people wanting to help out. Um, we've been working in partnership with many, many synagogues and agencies, all who have sent out um, the fundraising effort to their communities. And it's just, um, I, uh, it's the level of support um, and the breadth of support has really um, been breathtaking um, because we're watching, you know, this crisis unfold in this uh, completely unnecessary war. 
um, unfold in front of us, and which is why we're seeing the local response and the global. I mean, the political and business response is also, I mean, something that my guess is that most people, if they were to think about it, you know, two and a half weeks ago, would not have guessed that this mm. is, would have been the response. I mean, ranging from, you know, Europe to American politics to business to every single person watching this. And so, but we've seen that within the Jewish community, um, really wanting to help out, help out the 200,000 Jews and to help out Ukrainians in general, whatever they may want to do. And I, I wanted to add also about the refugees. Um, they're, they're, we're seeing obviously very similar things. I mean, the, the women and children who cross the border and whose husbands stay behind are not, they don't want to leave. They want to be reunited with their families. At the same time, we are seeing um, really just beginning the couple of days ago, the first families um, arriving in Israel. Um, so the people who do want um, to leave um, Israel um, is open. Um, and um, so we've seen, I think it's just a couple of hundred um, uh, Jewish households arriving in Israel um, and uh, being um, resettled at least short term. It may not be permanent, but at least short term mm -hmm. um, there. So there's a broad array of um, both response um, locally and then globally um, on these issues. I, I think that, oh, sorry, I was going to just add, yeah, if I may. Um, we had some trouble with technology getting on this radio program. And yet technology, I think, has also added to that. And I'd like to add to Gil's comments of it. Basically, this is one of the first wars in which we're watching it in real time. The entire world, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, and I think that has helped the world galvanize because you can't deny it. I was at a seminar recently where someone asked, well, you know, in wars, uh, how does the propaganda of each side make a difference? And um, the speaker, it was Jeffrey Herf at University of Maryland, who has studied genocide, et cetera. He just turned around and said, this is a ridiculous question because this is not like a typical war where it builds up and both sides are ready to, to go to war. This uh -huh. is an aggressor and a victim. So that's not about propaganda, you know, other than the Russian propaganda that's being given in Russia. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and this morning my guests are Tamara Warabi, Parish Council President at St. Andrew Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral in Silver Spring, Maryland, and Gil Pruce, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington. I wanted to ask both of you, um, Gil can start with you since you just were, were making your comments about about um, uh, the Federation's emergency fund and and you know the support that you all have, have gained. I'm, I am curious just again given the theme of this show have there have there been um, interfaith collaborations on on that level have you have you partnered with any other uh, groups outside the Jewish community? Um, yes, I, I mean, I, I guess on the margin, I mean, right now, everyone is working so quickly. Um, I actually know several volunteers who've been uh, to St. Andrew to um, help pack, um, to oh. both buy things and to help pack. And I, I received some pictures the other day of one of our, one of our colleagues who uh, uh, spent um, the day there working on it. Um, Thank you. I, oh, absolutely. And, and I think part of it is something this happened I mean, while on the one hand, we saw it developing, I mean, we saw kind of the, you know, Russia bringing soldiers. I don't know if we had hoped that it wouldn't actually happen or, mm. um, but it happened so quickly that the response, everyone's been moving so quickly to get it, um, to get help over as fast as possible. Um, I, I, I believe that there's starting to be more conversation of how do we work together? How do we make sure? And, and, and I, while I'm not on the, obviously on the ground in, in Ukraine or on the borders, uh, my sense is that parties are working together very extensively more on the ground in response. Um, but here, a lot of us, there's been the effort to mobilize whatever parts of our community we can as fast as possible and get the word out. And, then we'll spend more time on the collaboration, et cetera. Um, sure. 
as opposed to starting with that, figuring out how to coordinate and then mobilizing. It's just been, um, you know, as I said, the, within 12 hours after we saw um, the invasion, we were out there trying to help out. Um, and so that was really um, at the core. Great. Um, uh, Tamara, how about, how about for you? How has it been for you all in terms of collaboration with other groups? Um, well, there is a uh, group called R-A-Z-O-M, Razom, and it was started by a bunch of young professionals from mostly Ukraine or Ukrainian-Americans um, some 20 years ago. And then when the war in 2014 happened, they have been mobilizing uh, just the Ukrainian community from whatever church or whatever group uh, and they're based out of New York and they have chapters around the, the country. They have a, a thing, uh, I don't have the exact um, website, it's called linktree.org, I think. But if you just look up Razom, R-A-Z-O-M, um, they have about seven groups that to, to give money to like United Help Ukraine and others. So what we are doing is we're collaborating with them. And uh, we have had, incredible amount of donations, incredible mm -hmm. number of volunteers coming in, just people who come by the church and want to uh, help pack. So we're fine on that. And we have store, we have a container to, for storage and we have trucks to get to airports, but we don't fully have the channel open. And we, on, we have places in Romania and Poland and warehouses mm. that can take the trucks to the Ukrainian border. And then we have people in Ukraine who can take it further, but our block is getting it out of the United States. Um, so MEST, M-E-E-S-T is an organization that for the last, since the war has been having one flight out a week or maybe once every two weeks out of New Jersey. And they're just now backed up and overwhelmed. So we are working now on trying to, with the State Department, through our, our, our elected representatives, through various uh, United Airlines, to try to find a way to get this stuff out faster. Because yeah. the problem is not getting it here, it's getting it across the ocean. Right. So if we can get it to Eastern Europe, we're good. Right, it, it makes it a markedly different um, uh, mobilization effort than, than what you were saying, the distinction between then receiving refugees, folks that need to be resettled um, and, yeah. are, and are not intending to go back. Yeah, yeah and uh, like two weeks ago, we, had, we were accepting clothes and we were getting all kinds of clothes. And then four days into the war, it was no more clothes, uh, mm. just personal hygiene, baby goods and medical, uh, tactical medical supplies. And now it's just medical supplies really. And how are how are you receiving that information about about what's needed? Is it, it it's coming from um, the the partner organization like the NGO? Yeah, the partner or? organizations are doing a very good job of sort of coordinating and sending this out. Um, right. Yeah, and then as I said, my my friend who's in Western Ukraine, but he's also working with Razum. Razum is putting a lot of this together. Wonderful. It's a great umbrella network. This is Interfaith-ish, our bi-weekly show on WOWD 94.3 FM, where we discuss the common ground and differences between our traditions. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and this morning we're talking with Tamara Werribee, Parish Council President at St. Andrew Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral in Silver Spring, Maryland, and Gil Pruce, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington. Now, as we do every episode in the second half of our program, it's time to turn the mics over to my dear guests to ask each other some questions of their own. On our show, we seek to model constructive and respectful dialogue in the spirit of learning, while at the same time, not being afraid to get into some interfaith-ish. And now back to Tamara and Gil. So I, I guess my question, not about uh, traditions, but more about today, um, you know, in terms of support, right? So if, if other people, I mean, I, people come as volunteers, but what are other ways if people wanted to help out through St. Andrew um, or Razom or others, what would be the best way that people could help out and, um, and uh, support uh, the broader needs? 
Yeah, that is the really, really, really tough question, isn't it? Because all of us want to help. But for example, we need medical supplies in Kharkiv. And Kharkiv is the city that's right on the Ukrainian border near Russia in the Northeast that has just been bombed and bombed and bombed. And you know, the ironic thing is it's an almost entirely Russian speaking population and why he would go and just bomb Russian people, civilians, et cetera, is unbelievable. But those people are starving and they can't get out because the roads are bombed, et cetera. They're starving and there's nothing the world can do to help them because you can't get the supplies across into uh, Eastern Ukraine. And so it's very, very frustrating. We have people calling us and say, I need to do something. I need to do something. So obviously the first is that we can give funds, but then we have to be very careful about where those funds go that they get to uh, places where there's an immediate need. Um, so we do have, I think at the moment, some good contacts with medical units uh, to, to distribute the medical supplies. Uh, but we don't have enough of them. We don't have enough of a network. Uh, and then you can bring medical supplies and bring them to the church and help pack. And um, someone said, you know, just being with each other and just expressing your support also does a lot because there are so many people with family that um, just psychologically uh, are, 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 are really in dire pain. Right. And sometimes just being able to vent that pain with each other uh, is, is helpful. But really, at this time, it's just supplies and, and finances, unfortunately. Eventually, maybe we can have volunteers going over there. I mean, I'd be the, one of the first people on a plane to go over and help rebuild. But we're, we're not at the point where we can rebuild yet. And I am very deeply concerned as to what is still going to happen in Ukraine. Uh, especially after the sanctions and Putin is just hell bent on uh, getting it. Someone compared it to like a couple who've been married and then got divorced because we do have common roots, but a thousand year old roots uh, and uh, the wife leaves and starts a new life and the husband can't, the ex-husband can't stand it. And then eventually in some cases she kills her. And I'm afraid that is the mindset of, of, of Putin. If you can't, if, if I can't have her, nobody will. And that's why I don't sleep at night or why I hate to wake up after my sleep. Yeah. Tamara, do you have uh, questions for, for Gil? Anything that um, you can help talk about? Well, I personally have always been very close with um, the Jewish community and Jewish friends. Um, somehow, I think we have we have a different history, but we both have a history of pain in our backgrounds. Um, so I've always found a simpatico personally myself. You know, when it turns around, who are my parents' friends or who are my friends? It always will be my best friend is Jewish, sort of thing. And I don't mean to sound that make that sound like a cliche. Uh, but just somehow that always happens. So I think I have an understanding of Jewish community, uh, but I, I'm just very grateful for the, for the outreach. And I think modern Ukraine is a incredibly multicultural country. The fact that over 30 years of independence, Ukraine didn't even make it compulsory that Ukrainian be the national language was because there was a respect for you are Ukrainian, but being Ukrainian does not mean you have to be of a certain religion, that you have to be speaking a certain language or that you even have to be of a certain race. Uh, and, and there was this uh, decision to make Ukraine a, a multicultural uh, country. So I'm very happy that people can come together and that Ukraine's bravery now can even bring more people together. We've had people, South Korean television came to our church and they came and said, we need to, we need to film you because people in South Korea are just crying. They're just feeling so awful about what is going on in, in, in Ukraine. And um, I'm thankful to the Jewish community for their support. 
Thank you. I, I guess I want to add one other thing, which is a little bit different in terms of the response. Um, one of the other things that we're working on is, and I know there's mixed um, perspective in terms of refugees, but for the United States to um, reopen some of the immigration laws that were used um, you know, at other times, whether it was post-Hungary or other times when they when broader people who were fleeing in that time Soviet persecution were allowed into the United States. And um, for the United States to kind of rethink some of the immigration law um, pressing just um, that um, we are working on, I think there's a collective effort across many different groups to, to, um, to elevate that and have uh, Congress pass uh, legislation to do that. Yeah, so. and that's brilliant because uh, American refugee policy is just really sad in terms of especially the last few years. Uh, what happens is Congress sets a, a ceiling and one of the highest numbers in the last 15 years is 100,000 people. So a year, so there's no way we can resettle, help resettle 2 million people. Uh, so we do need to lobby and I think Congress will, and, and it's Congress that has to set that number. So we know we have a divided Congress. It'll be even difficult to get them to, to choose. It's not uh, um, one of the Department of Homeland Security or Immigration or White House that gets to set that. Um, in comparison, I would like to just put a shout out for the Canadian government, which has been just far more open uh, to immigrants and, and for many people who study immigration, consider it a model. Well, um, start in another week, uh, Canada is announcing a program where they will fast track Ukrainians and have said they will take an unlimited number of Ukrainians and give them a two-year uh, residency, at which point they can convert it. So it's not permanent residency, but they've already opened up 30 cities in Europe where people will be able to, to come to Canada fast tracked for two years. We don't have anything like that to to. to help people get in because immigration is a long process. Okay, the way immigration works is you come under the United Nations first, the UNHCR and the UNHCR gets your list, offers your name for resettlement and that takes a long time. And, and I agree with Gil, we need to pressure when, when the time comes, which is just a little bit too early because most of these people and, the, and there are very few intact families. If they're intact families, they're ready perhaps to you know, move to another uh, country. But when it's just women and children, it's part of the family. They're just temp hopefully temporary where they are. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. I'm your host, Jack Gordon. And this morning, my guests are Tamara Warabi, Parish Council President at St. Andrew Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral in Silver Spring, Maryland, and Gil Pruce, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington. As we're wrapping up here, um, I, you know, I want to just think about, you know, obviously this this uncertain time that we're we're in right now, and Gil coming back to this idea, you know, sort of a a mixed relationship with Ukraine that the Jewish community sort of has historically. Uh, obviously, many Jewish families originating in Ukraine and, and, you know, might might be feeling a certain way, you know, seeing seeing these connections with the crisis there right now. Um, I'm curious um, how your your community, how you've seen the, the D.C. area Jewish community has helped people make sense of, of the crisis in Ukraine and and feel a, a sense of, of peace and motivation to keep going. Amidst yeah. turmoil. I mean, as you know, that we have, uh, and I've been in conversations with people across a very broad spectrum. And to be honest, there's some people who are saying um, they don't want to do anything given their particular family history um, and they are not interested. Others who are saying that um, they want to help every single person and during time of war, our job is to help people regardless of any particular history, and um, and that's also a significant segment. And there are others who are saying we have a responsibility to everyone, but also an additional responsibility to members of the Jewish community who are in Ukraine, and that 
um, we need to balance both the broad support in a crisis, but also is there any additional responsibility? Um, and so I've heard all of that and I encourage people to participate in whatever way they feel comfortable. Um, it's important for all of us to be engaged and to learn. And if people um, want to, you know, if they don't want to do anything, obviously <laughs> there are people who do that. And if people who um, want to just focus on how do they support the Jewish community, um, that's also fine. If you want to help everyone, there are a lot of vehicles for doing that. Um, there are vehicles for supporting um, orphans or people with disabilities as well. So there, there are a lot of different organizations and ways to do that. My goal is to have everyone understand that there is a crisis and if there's a way that they, if they want to do something about it, that there are ways that they can actually have an impact, that there are strong organizations that are trusted organizations um, that are doing real and important work on the ground and that they should have the confidence, whether it's by sending items or sending dollars, that they are making a difference um, and that there are things that they can do. And so that's, that's my goal. Um, I guess the one last point is, um, as was noted when we started, we are just a little over two weeks um, into this. Um, this is going to go on for a long time, um, regardless of the outcome, um, the needs of Ukraine um, and the Ukrainian community um, is going to last months, if not years. And so um, there's a lot of focus right now. Um, but, you know, two months from now, when something else becomes the issue, we can't forget and simply move on. Um, this is a, a significant issue that we need to stay focused on um, over time. And it's great to have uh, organizations like yours that are, are working on this. Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow for for you, what would have been? You talked a little bit about some of that that um, spiritual advice that um, uh, the 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 Father, the father Steliak. your Father Steliak was saying at, at St. Andrew. Could tell us a little bit about how how your community is helping um, um, folks find peace amidst the turmoil right now. I think by staying open, by just being a physical place where people can come, um, that's helping a lot. Last week, we had um, someone on Facebook just decide to have a spontaneous bazaar. And they uh, um, put on Facebook, if you bring a craft, if you bring a baked good, we'll give you a table. And you can sell anything you want provided all the 100% of the revenues go to the church fund, humanitarian aid to Ukraine. And uh, we ended up with 2,000 people. It was, mm -hmm. mind you, a very nice day. In and, and he pulled in $459 by himself as, as something to help, help Ukraine. And so people asked us, so are you going to do this again next Sunday? And we kind of went, uh, yeah, I guess we're, I guess we're doing it again. So I think we need to have a place just physically where people can come. It helps. Uh, but as Gil says, this is going to last for a long time. And, and we're too, we're too programmed to be worried about one situation. And then a couple of months later, we do move on to other things, but I, I'm just proud to be of Ukrainian heritage because of the determination and, and leadership of Zelensky that has been shown. And, um, you know, it's rare that people say, I'll put my life down for my country. Mm. And that then makes you realize there must be a country unlike what Mr. Putin uh, sees. Well, again, I wanna thank you, thank you for, for coming and sharing your story, particularly during this tumultuous time. Um, again, to, just to uh, give folks who are listening a, a, a path to be uh, to be of help, to be of assistance and support. Um, how can uh, how can they join uh, in with the the Jewish Federation's emergency fund? So um, through our website, um, which is on uh, shalomdc.org, um, we have um, the banner to give uh, to the Ukrainian emergency fund. And so um, that's probably the easiest thing. So shalomdc.org um, and 100% um, of the dollars that are donated are being sent over to help people on the ground. Wonderful. 
And tomorrow for for uh, Saint Andrew uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church. It's www Saint Andrew spelled S T and no S Saint Andrew U O C for Ukrainian Orthodox Church S T A N D R E W U O C dot. Well, and and we'll look forward to seeing you in September at the Ukrainian festival at St. Andrew as well. Third, third weekend, third weekend in September, which is like, if I look real quick here, September 16th, 17th and 18th. All right. I assume bring your dancing shoes and a healthy appetite. Uh, definitely, definitely. And a smile and a smile. And a smile. Wonderful. An optimistic viewpoint. We'll look forward to uh, to seeing you all in person, hopefully soon. And uh, thank you again for being with me today on the program. Thank, thank you. you so much. Nice to meet you, Gil. And nice, nice to, to meet you, you too, Jack. tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, good to meet you too tomorrow. And and thank you. And please give our love and support to everybody um, at the church. Thank you. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests Tamara Werribee and Gil Pruce. For more information on how to support Ukraine, be sure to check out St. Andrew Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral at standrewuoc.org and the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington's Ukraine Emergency Fund at shalomdc.org. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. If you're listening to this over at TacomaRadio.org, you can also find our archives of past shows, or check us out at your podcast aggregator of choice. I know we had a few technical difficulties in the show, so thanks for bearing with us. And if you missed any details about supporting either of these organizations and their efforts, the links are in the show notes of this episode. And believe it or not, dear listener, we're coming up on our fourth anniversary. We're nearly at 100 episodes of Interfaith-ish. And I'd love to hear what you've learned from our time on the air. So send a message to interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Or tag us on social media at Interfaith-ish. Favorite episodes, favorite guests, new ideas you've learned and shared with friends. We want to hear all about it. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org. Mm-hmm.